This podcast is an invitation to feel and experience the souls of famous old Hollywood homes and to have an in-depth journey to the areas where they're located through interviews with longtime residents. Either you're a fan of old Hollywood in Los Angeles, planning to have a vacation, or an even bigger step, considering a certain area for your future home. This is your opportunity to receive valuable information and insightful advice you won't find anywhere else. Hello, hello, and welcome to my podcast. I am in the mood for California. Today, we'll explore and feel multifamily housing in Los Angeles and Santa Monica, featuring an interview with amazing Francis Anderton. The kind of housing that's going to come into your neighborhood could be offering a really great lifestyle. In fact, it could be offering a lifestyle that you yourself might enjoy or mm-hmm. your child, your grown-up daughter might enjoy or your elderly mother might enjoy. You know, I wanted to, so in that sense, I also wanted to unify people who already live in multifamily housing and people who don't and say, this is a way of living that is or can be more sort of socially welcoming. Masha Korpacheva is a California-based realtor and a member of the National Association of Realtors in Los Angeles. She's an advocate for selling and buying homes with soul and practicing mindfulness in real estate. With master's degrees in spiritual psychology and linguistics, Masha brings all of her skills to work with her clients. An intuit and empath, she has touched many lives with her outstanding ability to see beyond the visible and helping to come to better understanding of issues and their resolutions. An adventurous world traveler, from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania to exploring the Galapagos Islands, Masha has a particular passion for the City of Angels. Having landed in this paradise and adopted it as her home, she's been sharing old Hollywood stories since 2007. In the mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood. And now, are you ready to experience multifamily housing in Los Angeles? In the heart of Los Angeles, the tale of the city's first multifamily home is a web of intrigue intertwined with the rise of apart hotels and the birth of the nascent movie industry. It was probably the migration of dreamers and doers to this bustling city that became the catalyst for the emergence of multifamily housing, and one story stands out amidst the vibrant streets and palm-lined boulevards. At the northwest corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Garfield Place, there stands today a brand new apartment building, and nothing reminds of what was once one of Hollywood's first grand apartment hotels, the New Hollywood. Originally named the Garfield Apartments, the New Hollywood was rising as a brash young man named Cecil B. DeMille began crafting his first cinematic masterpiece, The Squawman, in 1914, a production that would usher in a new era for Hollywood. 
financed by the Coast Utilities Investment Company. The three-story structure towered over the modest craftsman-style bungalows that surrounded it upon its completion in 1914. Chicago architect Rudolf F. Schering designed the new Hollywood in a U-shape, embracing a 50 by 109 entry court that offered picturesque views from all 205 rooms. Inside, the new Hollywood boasted two- and three-room apartments, each equipped with private bus and steam heating. Practicality reigned supreme, with built-in amenities and disappearing wall beds. A novel feature was the built-in vacuum cleaning system, a relic of its time. The new Hollywood also had a billiard room in the basement and a sun parlor on the roof, offering residents a sense of community and leisure. Though unassuming in its appearance, upon completion, the new Hollywood was a welcome addition to the burgeoning community. Its construction was serendipitous, with numerous movie studios springing up within blocks, including the William Fox Studios at Sunset and Western. In its early years, the new Hollywood played host to members of the emerging film colony. Two notable residents were James Cruz, who would later rise to prominence as one of Hollywood's leading directors in the 1920s, and Raymond Hatton, a major star of the same period. Both called the new Hollywood home in the mid-late 1910s. However, by the early 1920s, the new Hollywood's luster began to fade, although it maintained its dignity as a residential and transient hotel through the 1950s, the glittering stars of its early years never returned. The final chapter in the new Hollywood story unfolded at 4.31 a.m. on January 17, 1994, when the Northridge earthquake struck with such force that it shook the old building off its foundation. Regrettably, demolition followed shortly thereafter, leaving behind only memories and the two venerable palm trees to stand as witnesses to its rich history. But as Los Angeles thrives and reinvents itself, let the story of the new Hollywood serve as a reminder that even in the face of adversity, the dreams and aspirations of a city are never truly lost. They simply find new avenues to flourish, casting their glow over the dreams of tomorrow's dreamers. And here we are, having glimpsed into the history of multifamily housing in Los Angeles, we are now in Santa Monica, and I'm very happy to have amazing Francis Anderton here with me. Francis Anderton is the author of Common Ground, Multifamily Housing in Los Angeles, published by Angel City Press and winner of a gold award for best regional nonfiction from four-word reviews. Common Ground has been covered in a number of publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Capital and Maine, and the LA Times. 
She has co-produced short films for the non-profit housing developers, Community Corporation of Santa Monica, and Venice Community Housing. She is currently researching awesome and affordable housing as a fellow of Friends of Residential Treasures, Los Angeles, Fort L.A. She writes a regular newsletter on design and architecture for KCRW public radio station, for which she previously hosted the show DNA, Design and Architecture, and produced the current affairs show, Which Way LA? And to the point, she also supports the creation of programming at Helms Bakery District. Honors include the Esther McCoy Award from the Architectural Guild of USC School of Architecture for her work educating the public about architecture and urbanism. She serves on the boards of AIALA, Community Corp, and Palm Springs Modernism Week. Please check out her website, www.francisanderton.com, and you can also follow her on Instagram at DNA underscore design and architecture and common underscore ground underscore MFH underscore in underscore LA. Francis will share with us what it feels like to live in Santa Monica and we'll also delve into the rich history of multifamily housing in Los Angeles in general, which is such an overlooked facet of the city's architectural heritage. Hello, Francis. Hi, Masha. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. And thank you so much for reaching out to me. Oh, my God. It is such a joy to have you as my guest today. You have no idea. You're like an incredible expert on multifamily housing in Los Angeles. And I was really looking forward to our conversation today. Lovely. So, Francis, you've had a long association with Los Angeles and its various neighborhoods. Could you please share what it is like to live in Santa Monica? And maybe you could describe the vibe and cultural aspects of the city that make it a unique place compared to other parts of Los Angeles? Well, it's extremely fortunate to live in Santa Monica because obviously it's close to the beach and, it, you know, it has some of those pleasures like the sunset and the lovely sea breezes and, and air. It also has a very interesting, it's a small city that is a progressive city. And as a consequence, it also has certain values I really appreciate, like it really values its public school system. It really values parks and swimming facilities for the community. Um, it also is a somewhat, or at least the neighborhood I live in, is, is a somewhat of an older neighborhood. It started being developed in the late 19th century. And as a consequence, mm -hmm. it has old growth trees, you know, that make it very pleasant to live in. And also in terms of being germane to the conversation we're about to have, it has something that's quite underappreciated in the rest of LA, I think, which is, yes, it has a reputation uh, that is borne out, in fact, for being a rather affluent city. And when people think of affluence, they think of single family homes. And yes, indeed, there are very wealthy people in Santa Monica living in very lovely single family homes. But actually, the majority in Santa Monica are renters 
Mm-hmm. And a good percentage of those renters are actually living in multifamily homes. They're living in apartment buildings, sometimes condo buildings. And it has a very strong rental community that has actually helped kind of forge its local politics in a way that West Hollywood has as well. So you, one might look at Santa Monica and think, oh, it's full of people doing yoga, wearing leggings, working out on the beach. And yes, there is all of that. But it's it's more complex than that as well. So yes, I hope that conveys a little bit of a picture of, of Santa Monica. Yes, it absolutely does. And I'm sure uh, for many listeners, it will be quite a surprise to find out that a great percentage of the people who live in Santa Monica are renters. Not really that many people know about that. Absolutely not. And in fact, a number I was given just a couple of days before I spoke with you, Masha, I was given the number 80%. I, I, I myself had read the number 70 or 71%, but, but either way, it's much more than half of the population in Santa Monica is renting. So, so yes, it is unexpected. I mean, more than half of Angelinos are renters, more than half of people in West Hollywood are renters. But in Santa Monica, it really kind of pushes up to more like three quarters. Yes, the number is astounding. 80% of renters. Wow. I mean, again, I want to say that's a number I was given. I myself thought the number was more like 70. So let's just say it's in that area, which is more or less three quarters. And that's a lot. Yes, yes, very true. And well, as you did mention, Los Angeles is quite often associated with uh, single family homes. But then your book, Common Ground, Multifamily housing in Los Angeles highlights the rich history of multifamily housing in the city. So what motivated you personally to delve into this lesser known aspect of LA's architectural history? Well, absolutely personally, because I have lived with my husband and daughter in an apartment building in Santa Monica for many, many years. It's a lovely apartment. I feel genuinely, incredibly lucky to live here. However, I watched as my daughter got older and went to high school here and found a lot of her friends were living in those single family homes in rather nice parts of Santa Monica. And she became extremely sensitive about where we live to the point that she didn't even want to bring her friends home. This was extremely kind of shocking and surprising to me. But it also coincided with a time when I was working at KCRW radio station, and we were doing a lot of coverage of conflicts around building more housing in LA. And I would increasingly get the sense that There was a kind of hierarchy of housing in LA and at the top of the pile was the owner-occupied single family home and anyone or any form of dwelling other than that was kind of lower on the scale. And and land use patterns reinforce that because we have in LA what are known as, you know, R1 or single family neighborhoods where you can only build single family Mm -hmm. homes and then apartment living or multifamily living for a whole bunch of historical reasons wound up being kind of pushed to closer to the arterials to the art, to the so-called commercial zones and you and you and what you ended up with was a kind of class separation in housing and you also got a racial separation because that was kind of part part of you know it was it was built into the actually the goals of some of the zoning and uh, various various uh, sort of covenants and various other structures that we've used to separate people through housing. And 
So those two things, the very personal and then the my sort of professional, my professional work that was bringing me into contact with the kind of housing story just made me really aware of how how di- how much we've dismissed multifamily housing as a real kind of way in which people live. And then in addition to that, how much we've kind of overlooked the really positive contributions to that multifamily history that, dis- you know, despite its challenges, despite the fact that many people would rather not live in an apartment when they can buy a house. The fact is that in LA, we actually have an incredible treasure trove mm-hmm. of multifamily housing types where people are living very happily, especially if their rent is stable. Perhaps they own it because it's a condo. But if got a sense of, of stability in your home, um, multifamily living in LA can be very special. And that's what I wanted to lay out in the book, is that really there's thousands, if not millions of people living in multifamily in LA. Not all of it is great. That's not what my book covers. My book covers the really wonderful examples, and there are many of them. Yes, yes. And oh my God, it is so incredible that you actually decided to write the book in order to encourage your daughter to fall in love with the place where she lives. Excuse me, I just slurped some water. Yes, that is right, because it really preoccupied me because she wouldn't bring her friends home. And it went on for a long time that she wouldn't bring her friends right. home. And when she finally did, they actually seemed to they seemed to sort of like our apartments. And this was this was sort of surprising to her. But the fact that she felt so awful about it was and and also I should say that she had a conflicted feeling because she didn't want her friends to know that she lived in an apartment. But at the same time, she actually enjoyed life in our apartment because we live in a building. It was actually designed by the architect Frank Gehry back in the 1960s. It's very well designed. It's six units around a courtyard. Two of the other tenants had an only child as well. So she had two other children in the building that she could hang out with. When when parents needed to go out, our children would go to the other apartment. So it was very social. Mm-hmm. And then she had kind of sort of surrogate aunts and uncles, you know, like the couple live upstairs from us, they're always really sweet to her and interested in what she's doing. So, and, you know, it's a very nicely designed space as well. So she actually was having a good life here. This was the thing. She had this, these conflicting emotions. And when the book came out, and I did mention this in the introduction to the book, when the book came out and I went, and I've given a lot of talks about it, and I've mentioned this experience that summer my daughter had. And I've heard from a lot of people who came up to me after these talks and said, I felt like your daughter. I lived in a multifamily place. I was happy. We had open staircases outside. We had courtyards. I could play with my friends. We kicked a ball around. It was fun. And yet at the same time, they were embarrassed about where they lived. And I just thought this is insane. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is insane. You can't have people growing up, feeling somehow less than because of the place they live. And then to find they actually enjoy the place they live. So they've got these sort of dueling emotions. And I really wanted to unpack this, like what made these places actually kind of a really great place for a child to grow up in? And then 
what made them a place that they were embarrassed to tell their friends about. Right, right. And you know what I can hear from what you're describing is the power of reframing. Yes. The way you see sometimes the situation you're in is not always to your advantage. And when you reframe it, like just the fact that the building where you live is designed by Frank Gehry, I mean, you're living literally in a historical jewel, you know, uh, he's like an architectural genius and he's so famous and he's um, so renowned. And then, you know, once you reframe the situation, or in this case, the, uh, you know, housing uh, in which uh, you and your daughter uh, and your family have been living, you instantly start seeing it from a completely different perspective. And I can so relate to it in a way that when I was single and I had a tiny little bitty studio apartment on Larchmont, and uh, it was so small, but it was a historic building built in 1928. And actually, it was like the same year when the Greystone Mansion in Beverly Hills was built. And it used to be a hotel. And the way I decorated my tiny apartment, that I only referred to it as my room in the castle. <laughs> And I was in love with it just because of the way I saw it. So I was never ashamed of how small it was, but there were other attributes to it uh, that were really important to me. And what you did with your book, I think, not only for your daughter, but probably for so many other people who have read it, is that you united people through housing. Because you said that people get to be separated through housing, but what you did, you united them. Because it is when you have an apartment or a condo in a multifamily um, building is when you actually feel uh, a bigger sense of community, I think. That's right. You've nailed it. So, well, you've nailed it. It's just, it's incredible what you did. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing so many people together. Well, I definitely did want to reframe. You are right. I wanted to, and I, there's been so much political pressure on communities to build more housing. And it's generally been positioned as, you know, we have a housing crisis. We've got to build more housing. You've got to accept more density in your neighborhoods. And a lot of people don't like that idea and they they don't welcome it. And I think when you just give people numbers and say, you know, you've got to build so and so many housing units in your neighborhood to help solve the housing crisis, I feel like that doesn't really win people over. What I wanted to do was say, you know, the kind of housing that's going to come into your neighborhood could be offering a really great lifestyle. In fact, it could be offering a lifestyle that you yourself might enjoy or uh-huh. your child, your grown-up daughter might enjoy or your elderly mother might enjoy. You know, I wanted to, so in that sense, I also wanted to unify people who already live in multifamily housing and people who don't and say, this is a way of living that is or can be more sort of socially welcoming and and have a whole bunch of of attributes that 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 really can meet the needs of a lot of demographics because all those single family houses that we've that we associate with Los Angeles many of them were were I guess emerged out of the culture of what the mid night of the mid 20th century and the emphasis was on the nuclear family mm-hmm. the idea of the married couple that were going to have some kids and we all understand that our demographics have expanded so much. We've got so many different definitions of a household. It can be one person. It can be a couple. You know, it's all sorts. It's all sorts. It's multi-genders. It's everything. And so housing has to 
has to recognize that and yes. offer something. And we've so many of us are wondering how we're going to get older. So many of us are wondering if we have if we have teenage or adult children, how are they going to afford to live in LA? So anyway, it's really important to recognize that there's many different types of housing and and that multifamily offers really, really, you know, an opportunity for a great life if it's yes. well-designed and stable. Yes, yes, I agree. And also your book mentions such architects as Schindler and Richard Neutra and John Lautner. So how did these architects uh, contribute to the evolution of multifamily housing in Los Angeles? What do you think uh, sets their work apart? Well, what's so wonderful about those three that you've mentioned um, is that all of them were very much in the vanguard of experiments in the, I guess, sort of the modernist, the, the the modernist sort of school of thinking, but and in the case of Lautner, very much, I guess, organic, because he had worked with Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, all three of them worked with Frank Lloyd Wright. But then Neutra and Schindler, who had come from Vienna, also came here full of ideas forged in Europe about building mass housing, using latest technologies and production methods, and, you know, the new aesthetic that, that came out of the sort of modernist school. But then what they all did was they fused it with housing that was emerging to meet the needs of Southern Californians. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you might have Richard Neutra with, say, the Strathmore Apartments, which is in my book. And the Strathmore Apartments is eight units that if you look at them just purely architecturally, you think there's an international style building, angular, you know, sort of silver framed windows, orthogonal planning, overhangs, you know, this kind of a streamlined appearance. But then those those units, which, by the way, are essentially multifamily dwellings, those units look onto a shared pathway. And that shared pathway is very much borrowing from the bungalow court in the Los Angeles area, which has become popularized in the, what, the kind of, the 19-teens really takes off the idea of the bungalow court. We have a bunch of little dwellings on a single family lot, a single lot, but they are arranged around a court or they're arranged looking across an alley. And then along comes Neutron, Schindler does the same thing. Along come those architects, Schindler actually first, and they take that kind of courtyard idea that is in, that's kind of developing in, in the Los Angeles region but then they they change the aesthetic and they bring in this more modernist aesthetic, this idea of bringing in natural light from all sides and using the you know open glazing and and really fusing this idea of modernity, but also with with this need for access and and connection to the land that is so much of living in LA. And then John Lautner, who does this stunning apartment building called The Sheets, which is also in the book, he then, he's so experimental with form. I mean, he's completely avant-garde in the way he's he's playing with form. So he takes an eight-unit building that is also facing onto a shared staircase and a kind of built around a tree. But then he makes every unit a different shape. It's completely mm -hmm. sort of space age and and utterly unique. So, and he has these walls of glass because he loves that idea. So I recommend people to look at look at the book and look at what those architects did because it's pretty amazing. 
Yes, yes, it sounds amazing and so unique in a way. It's almost like the way we were just discussing. Lopner is that the units were all in different shapes to show the individuality of each unit. That's right. That's right. Because one of the downsides of apartment design can be that you have this standardized shape. It is reproduced over and over again, 10 units, 50 units, 100 units, and it can be extremely generic and ordinary. Now, a good apartment designer, of which there are many in LA, figures out how to take that standard unit and make it something that doesn't feel standard. Mm -hmm. And Lautner did that to the max with the Sheets Apartments. Yes, yes. Very ingenious. Very ingenious. So Common Ground discusses also the concept of well-designed, equitable and connected living space and also touches on the idea of shared open spaces in multifamily housing. So how would you say these communal areas evolved over time and how do you think they contribute to the quality of life for residents? Well, if we go back again to the bungalow court, say, in the early part of the last century, when LA is really taking off, um, you have um, developers, property owners looking to sort of maximize the value of their land. And some of them build houses or and, and, and maybe even sell those houses or they sell those lots. Some others look around and they see that there's a market for people who are going to rent who may be coming in just for a season. They may be coming in for health reasons and stay and then go back to their somewhere else. Anyway, they see that there's a market for renters, a big market. And they look at these sites and they think, okay, we're going to build a, a cluster of dwellings on this site, but we're not going to do it like the apartments that you might find in New York or Chicago, cold cities. No, what we're going to do is we're going to make something that's offered some of the attributes of a house in California, which is access to the land, ventilation coming in from as many windows as possible, and uh, openness to the sun. People want the sun when they come out here. So what do they do? Well, they put a bunch of those little dwellings around a little court or, or maybe facing each other across an alley. And what you what you have is you have ventilation because you remember this is before air conditioning. You have air, you have natural mm -hmm. ventilation coming in from both sides of the dwelling. You have sunlight coming in from both sides of the dwelling. So it's really practical reasons. Initiate what becomes actually a very popular way of living in LA. There were there were there were writings dating back to that period where people talk about the joy of living in these little bungalow courts that emerge. And they what they discover is that this central space, which is created really for practical reasons, becomes a very delightful social space. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that property, I, I get the sense that the owners of these pieces of land didn't start out with the idea of let's create a social space with buildings around it. No, I think they started out with a, how do we ventilate and light a place for free, you know, in a way that creates an attractive place to live for renters that's different from those tenement blocks um, back on the East Coast. Anyway, these places become very popular. And then what we see over the decades is we see this evolve. So we get the bungalow courts, and then we get the Spanish-style courtyard buildings of the 20s that become really popular. And then in the 30s and the 40s, we see the emergence of, of this on a much larger scale, the so-called garden apartment that's built 
by public developers and sometimes by the public sector. And then we see this carries on. And even up till now, and this is what I show in the book, it's become very difficult because of parking mandates and various codes. It's become harder and harder to put the courtyard Mm -hmm. into the center of a multifamily development these days. But it is possible. And certain smart developers, smart municipalities, smart architects figure out ways to do it. And I think that what's happened is that to answer your, your, the main part of your question is sort of why did it really take off in this area? I think that LA is this massive dispersed region. People like you and I, we've come from somewhere else. Most of us came from somewhere else. We left behind family and friends to move here. And then we're kind of on our own. And so many of us moved into one of these multifamily dwellings around a social space. And it was it was nice because we suddenly found that we had a few neighbors that we knew. Yes. If we were single, like I was for years, if we were single for years, we would just, why not stay there? You know, it's a very nice little mini community that gives us a, a sense of comfort and security in this huge, dispersed, somewhat lonely region. Absolutely. That's my theory on why these places became so much part of the lived experience in in LA for so many people. Yes, yes, very true. And I hope also that uh, the history of multifamily housing in LA can offer uh, some insights of potential solutions to the housing crisis that we are in right now, because, you know, we really need more housing and we need uh, some solutions to it. Well, Obviously, politicians, you know, elected officials changing the laws to make way for more housing. But still, even though the laws are changing, people in lower rise or even single family neighborhoods that have the multifamily coming close to them, they often fight it Mm -hmm. and they can fight it for years. And so what, what I hope to have accomplished with the book is simply contribute to using your word, reframing the narrative so that as people try and solve this housing problem, they change the cultural story so people won't fight it because they won't feel so negative towards it. They'll feel more positive towards it and they will welcome it as a positive contribution to the neighborhood, not a negative one. And I'm not pretending that the book can change people's minds overnight. I understand that that's obviously not going to happen. But I hope it makes a small contribution to that effort. Yes, yes. And it absolutely does. And I hope that everybody who has read your book or who will read your book, Common Ground, will take a piece of it with themselves. Because reframing does not refer only to housing. It refers to life itself. Because once you look at some issue as an opportunity, as you look at it from a completely different perspective, then you can really flourish and be successful with anything that you do. And there is so much ahead of us in the future uh, once we apply this uh, to our life and to housing, of course, as well. Well, you've put it very well, Maria. Thank you so much for for talking to me about this. Thank you, Francis. It was just uh, an incredible pleasure to discuss uh, your life and your book and your perspective here today. So I'm very, very deeply grateful and I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy it as well. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Until next time.
yes, stay in touch. Absolutely. Bye-bye. And bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you very much for tuning in to feel and experience the multifamily housing in Los Angeles and Santa Monica with my special guest, Francis Anderton. If you enjoy my podcast, In the Mood for California, please sign up for future episodes at your preferred platform and please leave your feedback. I really appreciate your time and support. You can follow me on Instagram at In the Mood for California. And check out my website, www.inthemoodforcalifornia.com. I'm a realtor with Beverly & Company Luxury Properties. And my license number is 019-78714. Selling and buying homes with soul is not just my real estate strategy. It is an intuitive and holistic approach that embraces your values, aspirations, and conscious intentions. If you want to discover the power of mindfulness in your real estate journey with my compassionate guidance, I'm here for you. On our next adventure, we shall journey to the heart of the untamed Wild West nestled within Los Angeles, the picturesque Sunland. So looking forward to seeing you there. In the Mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood.